All right, so. Taxi me. Fuck you guys. It's <laughs> a good start to the recording. Sorry. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the worst. Cut that part out. Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. And joining me today... Your reluctant host, Colleen Stewart. Hello, everyone. She's finally here. Welcome to the show. (laughs) She asked this. The person you've been emailing (laughs) is a real person. You've been emailing, (laughs) yep. In fact, it's not Jimmy's doppelganger. Nope. He doesn't actually want to be a female. I am here. Nope. Yep, so... Things are true. Here we go. And I just embarrassed him, so sorry. Yeah, that was cool. I just won't invite you back. That's fine. What? I said I just won't invite you back. It's okay. Aw, thanks. Yeah. All right. Well, happy to be here. Let's do this. Listeners, I'm going to speak to the listeners right now. Listeners, now that you've met me and you're horrified, I apologize. And you're also going to hear me insert my unknowledgeable facts about food because that's all I think about all day. That's actually kind of, like, how I wanted to start, so I, I was going to start off by, like, asking you, like, you're you're kind of a foodie, right? This is going to be totally natural, don't worry. Kind of a foodie, right? <laughs> yes, Jim. <laughs> so, um, how do you actually say the name of this story? Because I don't know how to say, like, what is... You don't say apricot? Is it apricot or is it apricot? Oh, or is it apricot? No, it. Okay, no, 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 here we go, here we Apricot? Go. Is it French? Um, Oh, it's not French. Definitely not French. Wait, is it French? Is it French? I know nothing about French. I took two semesters of French. I took none. In college, and I almost failed both of them. No, apricot, it, apricot would be A-P-E-R-I-C-O-T, right? I mean, um, phonetically, that's how it should be. Yeah, I'm trying to prove you wrong, and I can't think that quickly. <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah, so um, we got a story today. Yeah, we it's do. Called it's called... Apricot iced tea. Apricot iced tea by no Zach apricots. Slingsby. No apricots. No so apricots. I think Zach would agree. No apricots. You know, I should have asked them, but I didn't. You should have. God. Oh, I'm going to make it a family show. I'm not going <laughs> to swear, I promise. No swearing. <laughs> no swearing. Um, no, I think Zach, or Zachary, if he prefers, um, I think this story was, as we talked about before we got on this podcast recording situation we think both of us agreed that it's much more lighthearted than the rest of the stories that we have received not to say those are that's a good or bad thing true it's just a statement it's a fact and you know it's nice every once in a while to read something that's a little more uh, uplifting i guess and i mean i guess this is not necessarily uplifting but i would it's say just, it's ref- it it's refreshing like <laughs> apricot iced tea so, Zach, it's all you, man. Apricot Iced Tea by Zachary Slingsby. Emily had earned these two hours on a spring Tuesday afternoon on this fresh public lawn. She'd packed diapers, wipes, burp cloths, four toys, and a plush velvet blanket to spread at her feet. She used a sweet treat to tease the dog down both flights of stairs. She leashed him and anchored his collar to the gate. Then she went back up for the beach chair and the zipper bag 
and returned at last for the baby. She secured her 12-week-old Cassandra in a tight bjorn with proper head support, fixed the safety clips, and fastened the buckle. She wrapped the Labrador's leash around her wrist, hung the diaper bag off her neck, and balanced the beach chair over her shoulder. Emily had learned to play with pain. She'd breastfed Cassandra at 11.35, right when she woke up from her first nap, for about 25 minutes. It was 12.30 when she'd finished burping and changing her, administering tummy time and packing. Lincoln Park was two blocks away. She arrived at 12.45. They were still loyal to the three-hour rotation, feed, play, sleep, repeat, which meant Cassandra would nap blissfully within the half hour and need to eat again at 2.30. This gave Emily 80 paradisiacal minutes on the wide-empty, sun-blessed lawn before she had to head back. This was what young motherhood was all about. This was why she'd agreed to work only one day a week during Cassandra's infancy. This was the truth, beauty, glory, and reprieve of love's earnest labor. Emily would bask. She staked a claim under the penumbra of two trees whose branches bowed enough that the leaves cast a wonderful latticed shade. The sun could peek in, toast her toes, but not roast the baby. She shook the plush blanket and it rested on the breeze, then collapsed neatly over the grass. She set Cassandra down on a circle pillow in the middle and unfolded her chair at the short end. The baby smiled and rubbed her eyes, and Emily crouched and kissed her little face and knew it would be one of those warm, graceful descents into dreamland. The Labrador, Oscar, smelled and licked some dandelions, but was himself drowsy. He nestled in at the foot of the chair. Emily sat and reclined six inches. She took out her crusted Jane Austen paperback. She twisted the top off her cold apricot iced tea, took a long sip, and tucked it in the mesh cup holder. Cassandra was a wax statue. Her little lips pursed, her lashes gently tilting in rhythm with her faint breathing. Porcelain dipped serenity. The sky was a sapphire vault, peppered with fresh cotton wafers, and Emily lived under it. She checked the time. Seventy-six minutes left. She relaxed all her muscles, and the air seemed to stream out of her joints, and she moaned soundlessly. Her sandals off, her feet crossed, she leafed to her bookmark and started the next chapter. Two paragraphs in, she looked at Cassandra, still porcelain, still dreaming. She looked up at the penumbra again, peeking at the birds flitting on the branches. Would they fly too close, she wondered, tweet in her baby's ear. No. They had some a priori sense of decorum out here. They knew what we were and what we'd come for. They just wanted to sing us a song. She checked on the sky, still happy for her. She looked at the blanket camp a few trees away, a couple probably her age. They worked from home or skipped out after lunch, newly married or engaged, she decided. She watched. They were watching her. She watched them watching and started to see what they saw, the sonorous high note of late youth. A new life cared for, adored. 
but not ruining Emily's love of all other loves. It was all so balanced. Everyone wished they could kiss this baby and at the same time bask as Emily basked in the good, quiet joy that need not die. She reached into the diaper bag and took out her phone. She studied the scene and focused the camera. She took three pictures, collapsed the app, and opened Snapchat. Aiming at the perimeter of the plush blanket, she held record, panning over Cassandra's still life, Oscar's panting fur, and the tops of her own feet, coming to focus on the perspiring iced tea. She watched the playback and heard faraway cars and looming chirps and the white noise of debris. No filter. Caption, Tuesday afternoon at the office. She sent it to 20 favorites, saved it as a story. She smiled like she'd stolen something and slipped the device back in the bag. Weirdly, and without knowing quite why, she felt herself fight the urge to caption it, Symmetry. Her book was tented on the grass. She scooped it up and reclined again. The good life that every bitter bastard said was impossible. The nectar of vacation, mined from the dross of a weekday. She tasted, touched, smelled, saw, and heard the earth. And the earth said, good for you, baby. She recrossed her feet as she turned the page. And in that fractional motion, in the split instant of readjustment, of making her day just a short inch better, Emily realized she had to pee. There are only two kinds of people in America. The kind who find a channel and put the remote down on the coffee table in front of them, and those who find a channel and let it slide off their lap into the crevice between the cushions. Of course you'd know it to look at her, cozy spread in the park. Emily was the former. She always would be. Emily put things back. Her fine, soft husband, Keith, wanted to be the former. She really believed he did, but he was not. He would never know where the remote was, no matter how long he had been watching something. He didn't think about where things belonged, where they were most likely to be found by the next user. It was an unchangeable law of his personhood that the peanut butter cap would be replaced but never screwed back on, and a new roll of toilet paper would be brought near the toilet but never put in the dispenser. This plain truth laid the blueprint for Emily's spousal reality. If she was going to spend eternity with someone who had no bias toward order, a certain core part of her must learn to love disorder, not only to tolerate it. She didn't want a marriage of basic tolerance, one founded on acquaintanceship and mutual human decency. She wanted a love life. And to look at Keith every morning with loving eyes meant that she must train herself to find room in her heart to adore a dumpster. They had been married two years in eight months before they had Cassandra. She remembered agonizing over how to deliver the news. Her best friend Alice had hit her guy right in the gut with it. Baby, in belly, baby, baby, baby. Emily cringed at that story. She could do better. She waited until Keith got home from a three-day work retreat and said nothing at all when he asked what that big brown box was doing on the kitchen table. He asked again, and she shrugged and went on fixing her smoothie, digging through the sea-salt caramel crunch and shredded tinsel and foam popcorn. 
he finally extracted two bottles of non-alcoholic apple grape cider. Non-alcoholic? She said, keep digging. He guessed it. Keep digging. Tell me if you are, Emily. Are you? Emily, are you? Dig! He flipped the box upside down, and after the debris drenched the carpet, a short white stick fell out with a clunk. He grabbed it. Is that a plus? She jumped in his arms. He dropped the stick and shook his hand as though it gave him a shock and yelled, You pissed on it, right? They chose Cassandra that same night. He asked impossibly stupid questions at every stage. He didn't like the word dilated. He didn't know where to park at the doctor's office and always got a ticket. His eyes twitched when he heard the heartbeat. He rubbed her back before bed, but only after she asked. He took over almost all the cleaning, even the laundry, but complained every night, and all her best clothes were bleach-stained and perennially rumpled. He vacated the living room when she wanted to do yoga. He went with her to her parents once a week. He bought two pregnancy books and read one-third of one and one-fifth of another. She checked the dog ears. He stored volcanically and refused to seek help for it. And from the beginning, he said if she wanted to stay home when the baby came, she could. Emily had not planned to ask his permission, but she knew how he meant it. And having learned to love the disordered way he communicated love, she loved him for what he meant to say. She called it a prolonged leave and stayed on as a consultant one day a week. She didn't know if she could commit the next 18 years to full-time motherhood, but felt if they could swing it for the time being by remaining in their one-bedroom apartment and with Keith taking on some freelance, she may as well see what it had to offer. Capitol Hill was a fine place for young families to live. Emily and Keith were 30. They met at a nonprofit downtown six years earlier and took all the good, small steps to get to where they were. Their one bedroom was the only place they'd lived since marrying, and now it was the only place Cassandra lived since existing. Emily fit into her own life like her phone clicked into its hardcover. Clean, compact, sleek. As much as anyone could design their own future, Emily modeled hers on modest hopes, old-school endorphins, and elegant, endless spring afternoons. Symmetry. She knew plenty of people who loved to talk about man planning and God laughing, and the mental hazards of control and the pettiness of knowing what you want and how you want it. But she could never make much sense of fortune cookie wisdom. She trusted what she saw, and what she saw was a life unfurling much as she hoped it always would a future that resembled a birthday cake with all the candles blown out. And every picture on her phone was a realized wish. She shifted in her beach chair and tried to tell herself she didn't really feel it. No, no, no. Couldn't be. She was certain she'd remembered to use the bathroom right before they left. She knew how preciously the clock ticked on this lawn and she would not ever chance a situation like this. She went. She must have. Her bladder was empty. It was only a trick of how she was sitting. She shifted her legs again. A tingle pulsed across her hip. Worse than before. She cursed the iced tea. Even though she'd only taken one sip, it must have been the droplet that broke the dam. 
Who knew what sort of disarray her bowels were in anyway, not three months removed from the trauma of disgorging human life? She stomped her feet. No. No! How bad was it? She pushed some pressure down through her groin and felt the intensity rise. This was not a warning of what was to come. This had arrived. She had to pee badly. She dropped the book on the grass and covered her face with both hands. She looked at Cassandra, seamlessly comatose. Oscar, a dead brown log. Not now, she whispered. Please. She watched the people down the way. They were watching her again. They weren't suave. They glared. What the hell did they want? Then Emily felt her cheek and realized she was crying. She squeezed her kneecaps and bent all the way over until her face was in the grass. This expedited the request of her loins. The tank was full and furious, and she was a million miles from home. Was this what it would come to? She was going to wake the baby, pack away the blanket, the book, the toys, the chair, the diapers, the dog, the day. Her glimpse of civilized life was going to be cut short after eight solitary minutes because the nature out here had no communion with the nature of her own innards. The park, soft, placid, grass of green silk, her midsection, a howling sewer of yellow magma. She caught her breath and stood up. She chewed her nails as she thought through her options. Leaving was the most obvious and probably the most plausible. Holding it and trying to distract her brain had occurred first, but was quickly becoming a non-starter. Every second she waited, the magma swirled faster and fiercer, and the waves crashed on her pubic bone. She could ask a perfect stranger to watch her camp, her kid, and her lab, but no, she couldn't. She could go in her pants and tie a windbreaker around her waist for the walk back. But the discomfort, sheer shame, and Keith-like disorderliness of that scenario would extinguish any possible enjoyment of the next. She checked her phone. Now 65 minutes. She could pick Cassandra up, leave the dog loosely tethered to the chair, and hope they had a bathroom in the convenience mart at the far end of the park. But they didn't. She was pretty sure of it. She remembered Keith stopping in once to ask. It was only desperation trying to make her forget what she already knew. Besides, how would she hold Cassandra and urinate at the same time? She would have to carry the circle pillow as well, place it on the floor of the bathroom, the one they didn't even have, and lay her sweet girl a few inches above the grime and smut. She looked at all the trees in her vicinity. Most were thin-stumped, like those on either side of her. But there was one great bulky willow, maybe 20 yards up, its leaves thick and wilting to the point they almost created a sapling screen. No one had set up a blanket or chair anywhere near it. Theoretically, Emily could hide on the far side of its trunk and keep the baby in sight. If no cars drove down the other end of the road during the 30 or so seconds it would take to go, she could probably get away with it, even if a few people had suspicions when she emerged. The birds sang overhead. She shushed them, grabbing her temple, thinking frazzled, pissed. It was no longer a matter of negotiation or contemplation. It was here. She checked on the couple from earlier. Again, they were peeking at her, and again they looked away. It was an anomaly for them to be here at this time, she knew, and they hated that it was no anomaly for her. They hated what 
she had created on this clean, sweet family spread. But of course, they couldn't say that to each other. Instead, they probably said, imagine all that responsibility. Imagine carting all that to the park. She knew better. They watched her with the sad, false pride of a nerd in the cafeteria, pretending he was happy to eat alone because it gave him time to think. Screw them, and screw the three-hour rotation, and screw the mosquitoes of her pulverized innards, taking turns biting her groin from within. She grabbed the apricot iced tea and emptied it out on the grass. She stuffed it in her back pocket, took a long look at Cassandra, and started for the willow tree. What were the ways Emily learned to love disorder? She didn't say anything when his old boxers were on the bathroom floor two hours after he showered. She didn't say anything when he sliced a stick of butter horizontally. She smiled, smiled, at dear Keith when he stepped on a plastic fork peeking out from under his side of the bed. Carnage from Chinese takeout he insisted on eating in their room and said, We gotta, like, do something about this floor junk. Yes, we must, she thought, smiling, agreeing. Yes, dear Keith, we must do something. Smiling, she realized early on, would be better than seething. A smile was a universally recognized sign that you accepted the specimen in your mist. And seething could be done just as well internally. For the first two months of their marriage, she had no poker face. She would wait until he got in bed and set her book down. Okay, what did we learn today? Emily, I am so tired. We learned that if I call you once and you're on the other line, it is okay to ignore my call. If I call twice, even though I know you're on the line, it means I have something important to communicate and have chosen to override your other call. Okay. I'm not calling twice because I don't know you're on the phone. I hear the beep at the end of the ring. Everybody knows when someone they're calling is on a call. They don't call back to leave a message. They're calling back to say, hey, actually, this is important. I understand. What did we learn yesterday? Dude, come on! We learned that leaving a sponge in the sink rather than on the edge of it is a recipe for bacteria, infestation, and ultimately death. Agree? A pillow covered his face. Agree. The day before, please. I'm done. You agreed to these recaps, Keith. The day before and it's over. You're pushing it and you know it, Emily. I have to wake up in seven hours. That's... That's just a normal night's sleep. He flipped on his side. Good night. The day before, and it's over. Stop. I'll make it worth it. He sighed. When? Tomorrow. He sighed again. If I'm going to use the bathroom right before I get in the shower, I should flush the toilet, even if it might mess with the water pressure. Why should you do that? Because if I let it sit the whole time I'm in there, you can smell it the next time you come in. For the rest of the day. I can smell it for the rest of the day. Got it. She rubbed his back. I love you, husband. I love you. Two months passed in this fashion before she started to wonder if everyone else's honeymoon phase was quite as punctuated by corrections. I care way more about what he does right when he's out, her friend Alice told her, than what he does wrong at home. But Keith never gave Emily anything to wonder about in that realm, so she didn't wonder about it. Her mother. You grow, honey. He grows and you grow, and be glad if you grow together. Her father. He lived alone for too long, before, 
That's what happens to men who live alone. They need house training. Whenever they had couple friends over, or even a collection of singles, she tried hard not to let him blemish the meticulous ambiance she'd composed. Everyone commented on how together it was, how smooth, how adult. They would leave and she'd dump their glasses in the sink and throw away their beer bottles and Clorox wipe the surfaces and stare drunkenly at the restored tranquility. It was so good when they arrived, it was so good when they left. And she'd play waltz music and waltz. Keith would laugh and he'd be wearing his best Saturday night shirt and she'd be beautiful and they'd hold each other and she'd whisper, How romantic is a cleaned home? She preferred these instances, indulging her own affinity for spotlessness, to the pep talks that sought to instill that affinity in him. It couldn't be done, she realized. She realized what she had to do. So, one night before bed, he came in wearing a pout, ready for his censure. And she asked how his day was, and he regarded her cautiously and said, Fine. And she asked more questions to show she wanted to know more, to truly know what it was like. He painted her a picture and parenthetically confessed some anxiety about a new manager's dislike for him. They talked more about that, and she rubbed his shoulders. They got tired, and she shut the lights off. He said goodnight, but more as a question than a farewell. He was waiting for it. And this waiting made her want to answer with a cold, hard illustration of his thoughtlessness. She had one ready. She had ten ready. The silence ticked. She was about to say it. She could feel the truth of it coming to the corners of her lips. The pure justice of the amendment causing her to salivate. Their hearts beat in the darkness. She sat up. He was ready, she knew, for her to go ahead and say what he expected her to. She turned the light on. He was already nodding. Listen, she said, and her saliva gurgled. Keith. Yes. We're going to a winery on Saturday with Alice and Matt. And we're buying elegant cheese and having a picnic. And you have to wear your khakis. And afterward, we're going on a walk through the vineyards. And I need you to love it. He looked at the carnage on the floor by his bed. Okay, babe. Then she sat back and said goodnight. A goodnight with no question mark at the end. The neck of the iced tea bottle was just too small. She discovered this when she got behind the willow and unbuttoned her jeans. There was no chance she could hold it at the proper angle, pee in it, and not have a spill or runoff. She'd have to go right in the grass. Through the leaves, she saw her blanket was undisturbed. Everyone still napped. She looked everywhere and could not spot one soul with a clear line of sight to her mock latrine. Everyone was busy reading, walking, sleeping, tanning, or otherwise unalive. No cars were coming. She peeled down her jeans fast as she could. They bunched below her knees as she squatted. Child laughter rang out. She yelped, but it was just a few stray daycare inmates far across the street, wrestling one another and not looking her way. She crouched again. It was coming. The dam was splitting. Relief was so close she could already enjoy it. The first drop sprinkled, and at the same time she felt herself pelted, struck. She looked to the kids. She looked down, looked up. Almost involuntarily she cut off the flow and dropped back in the grass, 
A sharp white and green substance smeared the canal of her cleavage. It was the consistency of lotion or ointment. A drop of it clung to the bottom of her shirt, and another, she felt, sat on the tip of her nose. She ran a finger through it. She looked up and saw the tiny blue chirping sadist. The smell stung her logic, pride, and nostrils all at the same time. It happened. She had to come to terms with it. She had to say it to herself. A bird shit on my chest. A row of five cars chose then to zoom down the back street. Emily rolled face down, rubbing her stained skin into the lawn. The smear spread. Ah! Uh. She sprinted back to the blanket, thinking the only way this could possibly get worse was to discover her dog gutted and stuffed and her child abducted. She slowed as she saw they were not. Oscar was up and curious. He was annoyed by his leash and angry at Emily for not trusting him to stay close. She'd brought no water. She could have poured the iced tea over the sludge, but she'd emptied it for a piss canteen that proved useless. She grabbed the diaper bag and dug through it for baby wipes. But as sure as these things go, as sure as the sunset, the seasons, and the Sabbath, and sure as the kerosene burning in her bladder, there were no wipes left for Emily. In the more than two years since she resolved to love their differences and celebrate their strengths, Emily found Keith to be a wonderful life partner and a perfectly adequate human man. She worked around his indelicacies. She didn't yell about the disarray of the spice rack. She didn't remind him to wipe the toothpaste splatters off the bathroom mirror. She didn't begrudge him his unflossed molars or the dense black webby hair that lined his inner thighs. She gave him the freedom to be his own autonomous, squalid entity. In an exchange, without ever saying why or even consciously acknowledging he was doing it, Keith behaved in public. He did not, like Alice's husband or five others she could name, flinch, sigh, and bitch when she interrupted their day at the beach to take a picture for Instagram. He did not judge her for ravenously reloading the app to count her likes, or lack thereof. He agreed with almost no resistance to hire a professional photographer to capture Cassandra at three weeks, and six weeks, and soon twelve. He didn't make a peep when, forty-five minutes after delivery, still reclined on a sweat-and-tears-soaked hospital bed, she told him to fetch her foundation, eyeliner, and lipstick so they could post their first-ever family picture. Emily allowed Keith to live uncorrected and Keith gave Emily the one thing that only a husband could give, a full family portrait. It's okay, sweetie. Mommy has you. No, baby. Mommy has you. Oscar. Oscar, stop. Heal. The dull edge of the beach chair dug into the ridge under her shoulder blade as she ran, crab-legged, toward home. The scorching yellow magma had won the day. She was sweating and swearing, and her gut thudded, and she had grass in her hair and bird shit on her alabaster skin. Cassandra did not take kindly to being woken. Oscar did not appreciate the authoritative tug she gave his collar to impart that today, right now, this moment, disobedience was not an option. She'd stuffed everything into a bag or a side pocket without method or order, and now she raced. No, that's my girl. Who's my little girl? Don't cry, baby. Please don't cry. 
Cassandra, enough. Cassandra, please. Mommy's begging you. Mommy's begging you. As she turned onto her block, the plush blanket fell from between her arm and ribcage. She left it. She picked up speed while keeping an iron grip only on the leash and the child. The Bajoran was not properly fastened, and Cassandra was loose in her right arm, held still by a mother's frantic but relentless clutch. She clipped her knee on the gate as she entered her building courtyard. She cursed, but kept going, dropping the beach chair and the bag outside the door and plunging her leash-anchored hand into her jean pocket to find the keys. Once inside, it was up to Oscar to follow up the stairs or not. She couldn't care less. She took three steps at a time, Cassandra bawling in her ear. No baby, no baby, okay. Oscar bound up behind them, his collar jingling, announcing her state of crisis to the neighbors. That moment when a young baby discovers her lungs for the first time coincided impeccably with Emily bursting into her apartment. Cassandra screamed like she was on fire. Emily laid her in the rocker and scooted it right to the edge of the bathroom tile. Okay, 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 okay. She slammed the toilet seat down, which Keith had left in its primitive position, shoved her jeans to her ankles, and peed. She panted and exhaled. She panted some more. It was a sort of relief, she supposed. But by then the pain was so persistent, so penetrating, that the evacuation did not quell the terror of her insides. She went, but everything still ached. Her uterus, her muscles, her neck, her forehead. She went until there couldn't possibly be anything left. And as the baby howled, and the dog nudged the bathroom door open and stared at Emily, more came trickling out. She took a piece of toilet paper and laid it over the excrement on her chest. This did not wipe it away, but merely concealed the atrocity. A police blanket over a fresh corpse. A wordless memorial for the fallen. An emblem of reverence for a fucking tragedy. Oscar's tongue hung out of his mouth. He watched her on the toilet. She took out her phone and checked to see who opened her original Snapchat story. Her paradise before the fall. She saw that someone had not only replayed it, but wrote back, Ugh, I freaking hate you. Sitting in a meeting about who should, quote, own our Twitter, end quote. She smiled and wrote back. Just then she got another response. LOL, must be nice, dot dot dot. She locked the phone and stuck it in the collapsed jean pocket, crumpled at her ankles. Cassandra stopped crying. She was starting to sleep again. Oscar sat down on the bathroom rug, still watching. The toilet was full of the poison that ruined her Tuesday. She didn't think more would come, but she waited patiently just to see. And as she waited, she rested her chin on her palm and stared at the yellowed Q-tips on the floor under the sink, the ones that must have bounced off the garbage can that morning when her husband was getting ready to go to work. Zach is a graduate of the New School MFA program in New York and now lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and newborn daughter. He has recently completed a first novel, which he has every confidence will soon be available wherever fine books are sold. 
Also, Apricot Ice Tea was just accepted on a new distribution platform called Jumble Book. That's J-U-M-B-E-L-B-O-O-K, which bundles together stories of common themes or style, just like we do it here. You can find them at jumblebook.com, that's J-U-M-B-E-L-B-O-O-K.com, and Zach's story will appear there on July 17th. So, Carl, have you ever had a perfect day planned that just didn't quite go right? Uh, Jim, that's every day of my life. (laughs) Every day I wake up and I say, I look at myself in the mirror, I try not to scream because, you know, everybody wakes up not looking as beautiful as I do. And then I, I make a plan for myself and nothing goes right. And generally, actually, a lot of this happens where I have to pee and there's not a place for me to go to the bathroom. That That's... is, I feel Emily in this scenario because this has been me very often, very, very often. Yeah. Too often, actually. I should learn from my mistakes, but I do not. I bet Emily will learn from this mistake, to be honest. I think she probably I hope will. So. I'm thinking like my perfectly planned day one day last fall. I was trying to do like this road trip. And I had, like, six spots pointed out that I wanted to go to. And I had, like, the times in between, how long it would take me to drive. Mm-hmm. And I left late. And then I spent too long at the first place and too long at the second place. Cut out, like, the third and fourth place. And I still, like, didn't plan any time for lunch or dinner. So it was, like, 8.30 at night. I'm, like, three hours away from home. And I got, like, Pringles and a Gatorade from a gas station and drove home because... That's I it. like didn't have time to stop That's for dinner. Boy. That's, That's yeah. It. That was my day. That was a fun day. So I think uh, that's it. Close out the yeah, show. I mean, do we have anything else to say about Zach's lovely story? No, it w- I mean we kind of didn't say that much about it. <laughs> we know, just talked about ourselves. I feel but like I was just talking about ourselves, and that's really a self-sufficient thing to do when we're on a podcast talking about how or featuring this lovely story, and we didn't even give it the time of day. It's terrible. I mean, that's really what fiction is all about, though, isn't it? It's like relating to stories and we totally related to planning perfect day and not working out this is true cool so uh thank you zach for your story thanks colleen yes, for joining me zach, today thank you uh oh, don't thank me no no, no thanks necessary. no so now yeah. that you're on the show i can stop thanking you is that how this works perfect yeah okay like, honestly people he's been thanking me this whole time and i feel guilty because a round of applause and i wish this is another time we could insert some 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 sound in the background, but I would do a round of applause for Jim because every time this lovely podcast has graced your ears, it is the product of our good friend Jim here, and he deserves a round of applause. So hopefully, somehow we can get that noise in this podcast. I'm sure each listener is clapping by themselves right now. For me, I would like to think that, and I'm going to keep thinking that, which, but it's probably not true. Probably not. Uh, so subscribe, rate, review, slow down, listen up. Yes. See you next week. Listen up and give us a review, people. Give us a rating. That's how we keep the lights on, even though there's no lights on where I am right now. Yeah, there are no lights on from this podcast. There's no lights on. No, there's no lights. But figurative lights will stay on if you review us. Our lights will stay on. How about that? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Take care, everybody. See ya. Cool. Stop it. (laughs) No, I'm still (laughs) (laughs) recording. I'm still recording. No, you're not. Why would I stop? This out. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me laughing like a witch. Woo. Next time on Secondhand Stories. A Viking Promise and Octopus Love. 
Come find out what these two subjects have in common on episode 24. Slow down and listen up to Vikings by Rachel Bruff and Three Hearts by Melissa Palmer.